HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is proudly supported by LMT, the hospitality industry's preferred source for tabletop and more. Learn more at lmtprovisions.com. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love. All for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. And welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Here today with an interesting person, Justin Rosenberg of Honey Grow. Um, I stumbled upon one of your fast casual locations in downtown Brooklyn some months ago, maybe even nearly a year ago. And, you know, often, and, and it feels like there's this explosion in New York of fast casual restaurants that happen don't succeed, disappear, and open up in that same spot, yet another fast casual joint. And you always say, what was there before? Well, this is something that I said, what is this? And I have a feeling that I might be here for a while. Uh, it feels like a fixture in downtown Brooklyn, but the concept behind what Honey Grow is has more than legs. So let's first start by defining what the word Honey Grow means as a concept or a business. Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me. Um, great question, because I get that all the time. Honey Grow is a play in words of honest eating and growing local. <clears throat> I created the concept in really 2009, opened the first one in 2012. 
And I remember right around the time my, my first daughter was born, I'm like, if I'm going to start my own business, now's the time. And just about to graduate uh, business school and thinking about the companies I loved and studied and as a kid growing up always loved, their names were often esoteric and applied only to the business. So Apple, I was always a huge Apple nerd back in the from the Macintosh days. Um, even when they had the Macworld catalogs, I still used to get me excited. And then Gil Emilio left and, and Jobs came back and I was like, whoa. <laughs> so, um, you know, I've always been a, an Apple fanboy. So Apple, um, Starbucks. Starbucks is just an iconic brand. They are incredible, but there's a story behind the name, obviously. There's some magic behind the name. At one point, uh, Howard Schultz had Il Giornale, I'm probably butchering the name, and they merged or bought Starbucks. And they decided to keep Starbucks because the name was powerful. So some other companies I could throw in there as well, Adidas maybe, Reebok, Nike. And I wanted something that was just applied to Honeygrow. So Honeygrow is a fast casual concept. We do uh, stir fries, we do salads, we do something called the honey bar, which is you're taking fruit, we're drizzling a local honey on top and garnish it with coconut flakes or granola or chocolate chips. And I actually came up with that while watching my daughter eat apples and honey during Rosh Hashanah one year. So... It's uh, it doesn't really have anything to do with honey at the end of the day, <laughs> other than that. And it's also not a Jewish fast casual place <laughs> no, no, either. No, no. We're not kosher. Yeah, no, not, not at all. <laughs> um, I, I just want to touch on honey grow again for a second because it is a compound word, and unlike Apple, which is itself a noun, sure. Um, a lot of those other businesses, I, I think of like Kodak in the same vein, hmm. are these abstract ideas. Sure. And you get to define anything you want that to be underneath the umbrella of that word. Sure. So. What did you want Honey Grow to be or to look like or to feel like once you defined its name? Clean and different. I think that was it. I just I wanted something that would be esoteric, clean, and different. And so the esoteric was the honest eating growing local kind of smashed together. The honest eating is the fact that we're cooking the food and we're doing it in front of you. You know where the food's coming from. We try to – we don't try. We, we are as transparent as imaginable in terms of where we get our stuff from. Um and the growing local concept really was we were buying originally back in the day as local as possible. So it was pretty cool. And of course, when you scale it, it, it becomes a huge challenge. But in the beginning, it was like, can we be 90% local? And the two things that wouldn't be like the banana and the avocado or something. Um, and then ultimately, if like a, a farmer's market opened up in a parking lot behind us, I was buying at the time the Thai basil, the cilantro, and the parsley from there. And it really was like before all these other big chains were like touting local, which I think they're full of shit. It was more like it just tastes good and it's colorful. And honestly, that's the way my family and I eat. So shout out to the Ardmore Farmer's Market real real, real quick. Um, that's where we get our food. So it was just a, a way that I can really build a brand that I believe in. Even in downtown Brooklyn, the first thing I noticed aside from the kiosk, and I'm a little bit of a Luddite, so you might have to walk <laughs> me through that process, is there's a big board and it states every single farm that you get your pieces of protein, your produce from. Um, that's part one of transparency. Sure. And part two is you really do actually see the food being cooked. And prior to us being on air, you mentioned something something to me called poop and scoop. Can you tell me what that is? <laughs> yeah. So there's so many fast casual concepts. And it's like basically a variation of chipotle and look i'm guilty of that too because i opened a smaller version of honey grow called mini grow which is basically an assembly line concept that was made for more of an urban landscape so at honey grow it's more like a starbucks or a shake shack where you order your food and wait 
And like a Starbucks or maybe more like a Shake Shack, it basically we're making your food made to order. So if you come in and you say, look, I want to get freshly made whole wheat noodles, chicken, peppers, onion, uh, toss in some whatever, right? I don't know. We're going to make it for you. And it's going to take maybe four to six minutes, depending on how many people are there. So we're making all the food made to order. So a poop and scoop to me is like cafeteria style, bam, bam, bam. I'm, I'm proud of what we do at Mini Grove because there's a, a ton of you know cooking, obviously, done in the back. But at Honey Grow, um, to me, it's always been about you're cooking in the back, you're cooking in the front. A lot of people who work at Honey Grow develop a skill set that they get poached by fine dining restaurants, particularly in, in Philadelphia. Um, when I used to rally my team, I'd always say, like, guys, like, I don't want you to leave, but you know, back when I used to run the restaurants, I don't want you to leave, but like, you're learning something here that you're not going to learn at that Olive Garden across the street. Or maybe you will, but I'm not going to name other names, but they're not going to show <laughs> you this. So uh, as time went on, you know, as we, we built a, a bit of a reputation in Philly, we lost people to some fine dining restaurants, which was bittersweet. It's like, ah, oh, cool. If you're going to go there, then that's pretty cool. But sucks for us because now we got to replace you and obviously train someone else up. I mean, you yourself took a turn in fine dining. You staged at a restaurant. Uh, what were you trying to take away from that and instill into the fast casual idea? Quality. I think when I did it back, this is 2010 or 11, there, the fast casuals that were out there were uh, maybe almost a, an amalgam of quick service than what it is today. And I just wanted to do something where I want, I'd want to go somewhere where I can get a really quality product uh, it was executed appropriately, and I, I wanted to immerse myself in that kind of environment under a chef that really knew what he was talking about. And I want to know where you're getting your food from, how are you sourcing it, how are you prepping it, how are you teaching your your teams to hold a knife, uh, how do you saute, how do you grill, how do you how do you salt meat? Like, like I just needed to learn this, and I figured I could figure everything else out. It may have been easier for me to get a job at Chipotle, but I didn't want that. I'd rather have the knowledge and skill set of Steve Ells, even though he went to culinary school and cooked way more than I did. I wanted to really know the details of the fine dining business and apply it to something fast casual that could be monetized and essentially grown. Well, how did you cook for yourself before Honey Grow was even a concept? Yeah, so I love making chicken parm. I'm actually a chicken parm aficionado. Um, I, it's like for me, whenever people are coming over, I'm like, oh, let's make chicken parm. Uh, that, that aside, I tend to eat plant-based, uh, 2009, I wound up having just high blood sugar and having high cholesterol. I was like, oh man, I don't want to go to medication. Um, I better, I better do something. I actually was at Whole Foods and I saw a book called the China study and it really, I just picked it up and it was basically the whole concept. It's forks over knives, uh, kind of style. Dr. T Colin Campbell is actually in forks over knives, but the idea really was, you can reverse heart disease and you could reverse tumor growth by eating a plant-based diet. And now I love meat and I love dairy and it was really hard for me to do, but I adopted it and I went to the doctor and everything was like the best it's ever been in terms of my blood work. I was like, okay, well, clearly this works. So for me, I, I tend to eat plant-based and during that period of time, I was making a lot of salads at lunch and all the stuff that I had left over prepped. I take, you know, buckwheat or, you know, whatever kind of noodles that I had in the house, throw it in a wok and I just toss it up, make a sauce and I was eating this three, four days a week. And I'm like, wait, like nobody's doing this. Nobody is actually out there doing something I could have for lunch and dinner. And this is before the whole grain bowl craze shit bowl that is throughout the city and elsewhere. It's like, look, we don't want to be another grain bowl or salad concept. I want to do something where I can come every single day, get a my salad for lunch and a stir fry for dinner and be more of a wholesome foods concept. And that's that's what Honey Grow is. 
How about this? Um, a brand forward restaurant called Toilet Bowl. <laughs> you can have that one. Thanks. <laughs> but I, I want to center around um, the idea of plant-based because plant-based doesn't mean you're completely devoid of protein. Sure. It just means that you care more about the protein on your plate and use it for accents, for flavoring, almost as a seasoning rather than as the, the main event. Yeah, I think it depends on the person. So like we sell, we get complaints like, I thought this was a vegan sauce, but it has honey in it. Well, we didn't advertise it as vegan. It really depends for, for me and to your point, you know, a lot of, let's say, various cultures will rarely eat meat, but they're typically plant-based. They'll they'll do that. It'll be um, a flavoring. It'll be some sort of like uh, a small portion or it could be maybe for a special occasion. Um, I'm not against eating meat at all. I mean, I, I love good a good chicken parm or a steak like but for me for health reasons it's just it's clear as day that that i just i operate better i almost want to turn the whole second part of this interview into a study on chicken parm and it it might it might devolve into that (laughs) but (laughs) but but more about you know the, the the noodles and the wok um it wasn't just that no one was doing it. I mean, they must have been delicious to you, too. And a wok is not an easy thing to use, at least in, in the environment of training someone for a fast, casual restaurant. Right. Why did you pinpoint those two things, noodles and woks, as what Honey Grow would be? Yeah, so it just was the idea of stir-fry. And I think in order to make a stir-fry, you need a wok. <laughs> so you certainly could saute it, don't get me wrong, but... Um, I just, I just, in my brain, that was the concept. It was, uh, there, there was P.F. Chang's and Payway and a million Mongolian barbecue concepts out in the Midwest. And to me, it was just like, walks. I don't know. Just, I don't know. <laughs> and, and why Philly? I was there. And also, we use touchscreen technology for the ordering process. And, you know, today, you have touchscreen in your pocket with your phone. Um, people in Philadelphia were used to Sheets and Wawa. Really, Wawa. Sheets is more, I guess, further west Pens- Pennsylvania. Shout out to Penn State, but it was um, there was already a, a bit of a um, adoption of it. Whereas I feel like if you open that in New York, people will be like, "Oh, it's kind of gimmicky." And the purpose of the touchscreens wasn't because oh, we're, we're the touchscreen concept. It was more like if you want a salad and I want a stir fry, the assembly line model is not going to work. And if you want a stir fry, probably more likely than not, you're going to want to customize that stir fry. So if I'm coming to order, I'm going to tell you I want this, 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 and this. You might forget something. It might hold things up. How do you really maximize throughput while keeping your labor costs down? Four touchscreens, taking your orders. Basically, it's like four people during rush taking your order. Um, we just developed the screens to make them really aesthetically nice, clean, super efficient. My uh, three-year-old, now 10-year-old at the time, was my test subject. So I'm like, look, if she can get through this, then anyone can get through this. And she's a very bright girl, but a three-year-old, if they can figure out how to go from point A to point B... Then I think this can work. So, but then, then at that time, you only had one child, right? When you first opened up Honey Grow, yes. Um, I, I think of it like parents having a whole bunch of kids screaming for dinner, and <laughs> you just created a service for them to individualize, to have modular meals. Um, it's probably great to take them out to Honey Grow, but when you're cooking at home for you know three children and you know two adults, that's a lot of different things that you're trying to cook at once. Yes, I, I mean absolutely. And we're biased. My, my fridge is, is stocked with honey at all times, so it actually kind of works out well for us. So what is the permutation? How many different meals can you actually have by going to honey grill? We, we did the math. I don't know the exact number, but it's some crazy number. It's, I don't know. Some, something nuts. I have no idea what the number Do you is. have a regular? Do you have a, an order that you get every time you go in there? So I actually, 
I get the same three to four things all the time because I'm usually testing the food. Um, any, I wouldn't say any, but many chefs will tell you that they hate eating in their restaurants because you're always going to find something wrong, even though it's definitely not wrong. It's just the OCD that I live with. So, um, I was in one of our restaurants yesterday and I'm like, well, you guys, you guys didn't shuck the noodles the right way. Clearly. I'm like, they did. They're fine. So I tend to eat some of the staples that we have on the menu, the seasonal. I like to get things with a lot of ingredients to make sure they don't forget anything. And if they do, let's have that conversation about, Hey guys, remember what's read the tickets, take your time. It's better that all the stuff's in there versus, you know, someone goes back to their office and freaks out because they're missing avocado. So I'm pretty much eating four or five same things. So it's, it's a graze more than it is a specific order. I would say that. Yeah. yeah. Also, <laughs> um, going into Honey Grow too. You know, I I talked about being a luddite before. Um, I could do it. Actually, I had someone holding my hand, <laughs> walking me through the process. But like you've introduced the food, the touchscreen is very clear and concise in its choices. Are you trying to build on that? Are you trying to make things, I, I don't want to use the word more complicated, mm. but what are you trying to grow in the next year or two? Or are you trying to pull things back? In terms of just the business? Mm-hmm. Um, both. Both. I think that you know, it's a great segue to what we were talking about before. It's like, well, what are we doing this year? So 2018, I'll start there. Um, I'll start. In, I'll start in 2000. I'll start in 2016. I'll go back. I'll yeah. go back a little. Lay bit. down on the couch. I'm here all day. <laughs> <sighs> Whatever again. So, um, 2016, things are great. Everything's rocking. We got firing all cylinders. Plan growth for 2017, and I we decided to open up in a bunch of new markets at once, which was crazy. While opening a brand new concept, and I think there were some also macroeconomic forces at play where a lot of concepts were beginning to boom. Rents are really high, and um, we went. We just started planting flags, and I think that you know we look back. In all honesty, we were probably a little overconfident and during growth. And I see this with a lot of other concepts that are, you know, maybe at our stage or a a little bit above our stage. Um, You lose sight of what made you special. And what made us special was that focus on cooking, the focus on training, the focus on building the teams. I mean, you're growing like crazy. So I would walk into some honey grows and it wouldn't be honey grow. It'd be like bizarro version of honey grow. It'd be phony grow. So I was like, man, this is this is not cool. So for me, it was like, look, I want to create a long-term sustained company. I want to be able to travel to Japan with you and pop into a honey grow. I mean, there's no reason to think we couldn't. You know, our noodles from Sun Noodles, Japanese, it's, there's no reason it wouldn't work. Um, but it's not going to work if we don't get the basics and the foundations right. So 2019 for us is like, look, we're focusing on training. We're focusing on making sure we're the right bench, the right teams. We're catching our breath. But we're also looking in 2020 already for opening more restaurants. And it's actually a blessing in disguise that we were able to take this year to take a step back. And, you know, we closed a few duds and we're just saying, look, we got a lot of great things here. Let's let's figure out what's working. Let's make it better. Let's focus on the basics. And luckily, I had the support at the, you know, investor, executive and, and team levels. And we'll, we'll get back on the racetrack for next year. That's it. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then come yeah. back and talk more about the numbers. 94 investors, $50 million in 29 locations. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. This episode is proudly supported by LMT, the hospitality industry's preferred partner for sourcing tabletop supplies. 
From their New York City headquarters, LMT provides expertise and uniquely curated products for restaurants and hotels nationwide. Whether it's dinnerware, glassware, and cutlery, to small wares and equipment, LMT's approach to tasteful design and product knowledge is simply unmatched. Learn more at lmtprovisions.com and listen to founder Morgan Tucker on episode four of Opening Soon on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkill, here today with Justin Rosenberg of Honey Grill. Now, Right before the break, I mentioned a couple numbers, and we can define those a little bit better. 94, 50, 29. 94, it took 94 investors to find one to give you that initial amount of money that you needed to open up your first honey grill. Yeah. Yeah. What were you asking for, and why did it take you so many? Well, let me ask you a question. Would you invest in someone who's never done anything in restaurants or entrepreneurialism and has a completely unique concept at the time? Probably not. So I and and by the way, when I was pitching people, I was nervous as hell. So I'd be like, I got this concept, and uh, you know, I'd be like stuttering and sweating and just fucked it all up. So it took time to get confidence, and it took time for me to figure out what to say and what works. And uh, when I was pitching people, Facebook, I think just went public, so people thought I was a tech company because I mentioned touchscreens. Like, no, we're not a tech <laughs> company or a food company. And uh, long story short, wound up meeting a guy that partners with Stephen Starr and uh, David Robkin. David, one of three board members with Stephen. I think he was one of the original investors in Stephen and uh, just said, look, what's really cool about what you're doing, it's one concept. Stephen has like 30-something places, which are amazing. And I think you got to be brilliant to be able to do that. I'm not like that. I'm not that smart. I just need one thing and let me expand that. And I think with that, you could build some enterprise value. And uh, I think David was attracted to that concept I said, cool, I'll show you what I have in mind. We went up to New York. We looked at some similar concepts. At the time in New York, there was like 40 salad concepts. And I'm like, I don't want to be a salad concept. The idea really is like you can get your salad for lunch, your stir fry for dinner, your wife can get the stir fry, you get the salad, whatever. But you're using more or less the same ingredient base and just applying it differently. So um, he was pretty enthused. He's a food background. And then we brought on one more partner, a guy named Brooke Lundfest, and uh, opened the first restaurant. And the first one... It's hard. I mean, I, I did the menu in the, the first one. I had a chef consultant, whatever. It just didn't work out. So I just wound up doing it myself. And uh, it was pretty tough <laughs> in the beginning. So got my, my butt kicked, lost a lot of money. I had my two partners saying, is this going to work? Like, what do we get ourselves involved in? I also had a second lease I was about to sign with them. We all said, okay, let's do it. I'm shitting my pants. I'm like, oh, my God. And then suddenly, like, things worked. Like, it just took time, experience, training, uh, found the right people. I fired the original crew, rehired everybody, retrained them appropriately. And when we opened the second one, we knew what we were doing. And from day one, it just kind of skyrocketed. So a- then how much money did you need to start that business? And how much time do you think you needed to get it right? And how would that differ if you were doing that today? Yeah, it's a great question. So I needed $1 million. I actually was just talking about Dr. Evil the other day. I'm like, <laughs> it's kind of fun. So I needed a million bucks, and that was basically to support everything from the food photography that we had on our kiosks down to just the pre-opening expenses of paying and assuming a bit of a loss. Um, the beauty of opening not knowing what you're doing is that you're, you're, it's, it can serve as an advantage because you're like, oh, I guess I should be here at this point. Cool. It'll work out. So you're like hyper-optimistic. Today, it's like I already have too much data. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, if it's not working at this point, what, what do you want to do? Um, but yeah, I mean, I just... Today, what I'd do differently would be, um, 
Good question. Good question. Just, I was pretty, I mean, I was doing the books. I was pretty tight with the, with the finances. Um, nothing. I wouldn't do anything different. It was a really good experience. I got my butt kicked. It makes you tougher. Uh, nothing. I wouldn't change it. I love that as the title of your autobiography. I wouldn't <laughs> do anything different. <laughs> <laughs> no. But then when you're going through the process of trying to, you know, replicate or expand this idea of Honey Grow, how do you know you need X amount of money? Mm-hmm. Like, how, how did you get, what was it, $25 million in 2015, yeah. $20 more million dollars in 2016? How do you plot that out, and what do you use that money directly for? Sure. So you, you figure out the model, right? So if it costs to build the Honey Grow X, and you agree upon with your potential investors. I mean, you're obviously out there trying to raise money, but we agreed back in 2015, we worked with a group, Miller Investments, who did our second fundraise. We raised, I believe, $5 million. Um, it was, look, we're going to take this amount of money. We're going to open up X amount of restaurants. We're going to take this. We need a new POS system, and we want to redo our touchscreens. It's going to cost that. Um, you, you lay it out. You say, this is the plan. And you say, we're going to do this by this period of time. Um, we're going to hire people. So we had to hire an executive team. I mean, I, there's people just exponentially more intelligent than I am, especially on the development side. That was one of the challenges we had, which our development costs got high. And I was like, whoa, this is, this is not good. So I'm hiring a guy who just whacked it down. Our cost to build is better than ever now. So hiring that team before you know it's too late is pretty important as well. 29 locations. Mm-hmm. And it's been up to 34. Right. Uh, how many different cities are you in? And... It's interesting to note that even before we were on air, you said that you built a model for the Burbs, but you actually thought it was an urban model initially. Yeah. How has that all changed? That's a great question. So I opened up in Center City, Philadelphia. Urban model, it works. I opened up in Balakinwood, which is kind of like a quasi-urban suburban. It works. I opened up in Radnor, Pennsylvania, which is total suburban, and it didn't take off. It, it was doing okay. I opened up in Cherry Hill and Wilmington, Delaware, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, did okay, didn't blow up. I open up in Hoboken, and it's like home run. It's like okay, cool. I open up in University City, which is you know where Penn is, home run. It's like okay, data shows if you open in urban, it will blow up, and that's what we thought the model was. So the challenge with that was to build is expensive in urban because you're not always going to get the landlord giving you money. Hyper competitive market, rents are high. How can we take less space and build it for cheaper, which is how I created MiniGrow, and that was the model for that. Um, and ultimately, what we've realized as time went on, the locations I just talked about, the Radnor, the Cherry Hill, the Wilmingtons, after about 18 to 24 months, exploded. I mean, the numbers were crazy and, and still comping amazingly well. We just opened in Christiana, Delaware, and it just was a total home run. We're like, all right, cool. Well, we could build it for this here, and we're doing, you know, great in terms of uh, EBITDA and bottom line. Well, this is this is the model. Cool. Whereas in urban, urban's really challenging. Urban is hyper competitive now, especially in New York. Hyper competitive, rents are crazy, and minimum wage just went up. And look, we don't want to pay minimum wage. We want to pay above that. Um, but when you're forced to pay a really high number, you have a lot of challenges. You're not necessarily going to get all the people that you want, and you're going to be paying a fortune for it. And service is going to go down. Potentially prices may go up. And uh, your profit just erodes. So why bother? And especially at a time when you just walk in Manhattan, like take a rock and throw it that way. You're going to hit the window of a fast casual concept. And there's so many of them. We we're just talking about it before, right? Like 
there's 20 variations of Chipotle, and including Minigro. I mean, that's a, an assembly line model. But why, if our model works elsewhere, what do I need to be in the city for? I don't care. But you are in Boston and Chicago, and sure. I think Chicago is an interesting one because, again, it feels like we talked for ages before this episode yeah. because we keep <laughs> on referring to it. But what Portillo's has done Portillo's. in McDonald's backyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let me back up a second. Honey Girl works in an urban environment. That's <laughs> very clear. Um, there needs to be certain metrics at play. The rent needs to be a certain number, whatever. It does great urban. Um, it could do just as well suburban, maybe with the rents being a bit cheaper and a cheaper build out. And really less competition. I think what Portillo's, to go there, has done really well is that Portillo's hometown favorites, hyper-local, focus on training, focus on a great product and you know they didn't open up how many thousands like what 30,000 35,000 units whatever the number is like Portillo's has like what 50 or 60 it's just been about like a family run business serving really good product and that's it so I, I, I just think that's great do you consider yourself a family run business um well no it's me <laughs> so there's no uh, no family but I would say that the fact that I'm still cooking not like to fill a shift, but cooking to teach our DM and spending the time with our teams and being in the line. There is that family feel in the sense. Like I can't be everywhere at once, but look, I, I love heading up to a restaurant, be it, you know, like I said, Marlton, New Jersey yesterday and cooking for a few hours in the line with the team because they care. The team cares. They just being able to give that is awesome. And I'm, I'm proud of that. What, what I've noticed is that there are a couple quirks, idiosyncrasies, maybe not even those words, but there, there are touches that you've put in each location, which are all about your lifelong passions, That's cool. uh, music and yeah. design. And you've taken initiatives throughout all your locations to have those represented well. So it's, it's not like a, a big chain coming in and being devoid of any kind of personality or character. Each store has its own flair. Yeah. You, you need, you need soul. I think there, there was a amazing, uh, Graffiti. Well, I, I walked, actually, I had lunch at Ivan Ramen. And I'm like, oh, you know, I got a little bit of time. I got to make some phone calls. So I walked from Ivan Ramen to here, which was like a good three-mile walk and change and walked over the Williamsburg Bridge. And, you know, it was great. I was just killing two birds and one stone. And while I was walking, there was amazing graffiti. I don't know if it was on Broadway or on Moore Street that said something to the tune, I'm paraphrasing, we need less humans and more souls. And I'm like, man, that really hits home. That's That's true. Like... We need more some some more souls, and we need less fast fast casual concepts, and we need some more concepts, be it fast casual or not, with soul. And I want to make sure that every restaurant has a bit of soul. And so, working with a, a local artist, and we we just say, look, here are the guidelines. Make it colorful. Let us just take a look before you do it. Um, the local component, of course, we talk to different vendors, we talk to whoever, get their product in. Uh, the, it's got to have soul. If, if it's going to be a, a soulless Frankenstein's monster version of honey grow uh, or anything. Don't do it. We didn't even talk about the food and I can say that is foremost, obviously it's <laughs> delicious. Um, and I've had my fair share of stir fries and salads there, but what else are you trying to induce from uh, introduce from an ingredient standpoint, from a flavor standpoint sure. as, as a culinarian yeah. rather than as a business owner, uh, you know, to the world. That's a great question. So let's start with salads. Everyone does salads. You can go to Panera. You can go to name a salad concept in the city. 
I think for our salads, we want them to be fun, creative, approachable. Um, we're not, I'll be like, we're not doing anything like skyrocketly, incredibly different than anyone else. You know, it's just, it's something that you want it to be approachable, but really good. And you want some life in the salads. Like, you know, there's a lot of concepts do shit salads and a lot of concepts do great salads. And I think the ones that do great salads are figuring out how to take ingredients that are good, maybe a little bit different and approachable and throwing them in. So, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example, but salads, they got to be good. I think cheese makes a salad. So making sure we have the right <laughs> cheese uh, is pretty big. And on the stir fry side, you know, like I said, we I mentioned before, um, using sun noodles. So the noodles kind of like the espresso shot of a coffee for us. Um, the noodles got to be awesome. And so I went to, to Ivan because it's sun and they're good. And I'm like, oh, I'll grab a quick, quick lunch before I head over. Um, just making sure that could we do innovation with noodles? Can we do carrot noodle? Can we do pumpkin noodle? Can we like what can we do? So I think you're going to see more of that coming out of the kitchen pretty soon. Um, we just made this insanely amazing buffalo chicken stir fry. I'm probably giving away too much right now, <laughs> but it was really fucking good. So we have some cool stuff going with that. We've been spiralizing a lot the vegetables because why not? And it's really good. We actually have spiralized beets at Minigrow, and it's great for salads. So try it. We're doing a vegan AF um, stir fry now, which is a fully plant-based stir fry with some vegan chorizo. We're spiralizing sweet potato. We're spiralizing um, zucchini. And it's just a great way to get your vegetables and still have some fun with the product. And I think kind of going back with innovation, and again, because there's so many salad concepts out there, how can you make something that's as healthy as a salad but different? How can you have a grain bowl that's not another fucking grain bowl? <laughs> I mean, noodles are grains. So we're doing spinach noodles. We're doing fresh egg white noodles. We're doing whole wheat noodles. It's grains. But like different like we don't want to be like everybody else we'd rather do something that's more fun and approachable than just another fucking quinoa bowl so that's always been something big for me um but on the food side i think one of the challenges we're not an asian concept and people think oh well you know you guys have woks but certainly asian inspired um but you know we have various sauces we had this really delicious kind of like chipotle mexican um stir fry sauce right now for the vegan af um trying to i love the red coconut curry Thank you. Those yeah. are my recipes, too. Yeah. So I don't know what the hell I'm doing, so yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> now, uh, Coconut curry is great. It used to be better when it had fish sauce in it. Yeah. And two things. One, I'm like, I want to make this plant-based. And two, as anyone who works in a kitchen knows that if you knock over a bottle of fish sauce, yeah. it's one of the most <laughs> rancid experiences ever. I had one blow up on a plane once, and it started <laughs> dripping out of the overhead <laughs> bin, and yeah. I pretended like it wasn't my bag. And I had to like <laughs> ditch that whole thing on the way home. Yeah, it happened more than once in one of our kitchens. And I'm like, that's it. Get rid of the fucking fish sauce. So that's why. Um, yeah, I don't know. We're always playing with stuff. We're always tinkering. And I think that now that we have this year to breathe, it's it's more of, of that. And it's pretty fun. And maybe there's going to be an off-the-menu chicken parm someday. Let me tell you something. <laughs> I will make you chicken parm. And I will blow you away with it. Okay. That's a deal. <laughs> well, we used to actually have pango chicken on the menu for our salads. And it was amazing. It was like this breadcrumbs, some pecorino, the breadcrumbs, it was like buttermilk and egg wash, whatever. It was, it was delicious. The problem was it had a yield of like 50% because our staff was eating it all the time. <laughs> so I'd walk in, I'd be like, Hey guys, what's up? I would pop in at like nine 30 at night. They'd be frying off chicken collets and eating it. But guys, come on. What the fuck? So well, I maybe we'll do a pop-up chicken parm night at honey grow in yeah. downtown Brooklyn. Who's there's, a, there's like an Instagram. I actually, what's his name? Chicken parm club or something. Oh, um, I don't know, but I'm gonna like, I'm gonna find out soon. Yeah, I have. I, I actually <laughs> like ask him questions once in a while. It's, he he goes around the city and rates chicken parms. It's amazing. So, it's good stuff. This was a show about honey grow, though. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for being on. For 
instilling not only healthy plant-based sure. you know, diets to so many people, which are delicious, but also could do a lot of good internally, mentally. I, I think that despite my passion for chicken parm, um, I think it's a no-brainer to adhere to a plant-based diet. It just like proven by numbers. I per- I've done it personally. I'm a skeptic of all things. I feel better. Life's better. Um, there's no question about it. And that's one of the greatest things I could do as a business owner is to be able to promote that and be able to serve that. And if, look, if you want to put quality product and, you know, protein in, in your stir fry, that's, that's fine in terms of, you know, uh, uh, animal-based protein, go for it. We're buying good stuff. You know, we're, we're vendors are great. We're not buying crap, low-grade stuff. Um, but if you want to have a fully plant-based stir fry, just, you know, grab fresh whole wheat noodles. You can do the region vegan chorizo, grab tofu, you don't have to put anything in there. You could put a bunch of vegetables in there and grab a sauce, uh, sweet soy five spice, and it's great and plant based, and you know it's it's good. So I hope you all stop by Honey Grow and also ask for that off the menu chicken parm just to drive Justin <laughs> a little bit nuts. One day, one day. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harling Turkell. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at three. Big thank you to our sponsor, Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.